Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james right now i really want you to get a copy of my book reinvent yourself i wrote this book because i needed it for 30 years i've had to reinvent my career my life so many times, over a dozen times, I've gone broke, I've lost my job, I've gotten divorced, I've had to raise family. And I've also had times when my interests simply changed. And I wanted to know, how do you start reinventing a career without taking too much risk, without risking going broke? So I wrote my stories, I wrote my techniques, all in this one book, Reinvent Yourself. And I want you to have a copy of my book. All you have to do is go to www.reinventbook.net That's www.reinventbook.net. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Right, and that's tough too. And then to figure out, am I juggling everything? How are my priorities? But just knowing, what are are my values? And 10 years from now, when I look back at this decade of my life, am I going to be impressed with how I spent it. I'll be happy with the with the priorities that I had and how I spent my time and who I spent it with. So this is related to actually the discussion we just had about when you know when to quit something. Yes. And I think for a lot of people, that's, that's a sticking point that they set this goal and then they, at all costs, they strive. It's like, I have to reach this goal or I told people this was what I was going to do. So now I'm going to do it. And to bring it back to mental strength, there's a misconception that if you quit, you give up, you change course, that somehow it means you're you're too weak to keep going. But sometimes it takes more strength to say, no, that's actually not what I want to do. How do you know when to quit something?
All right, we'll get started. Now, very important, Steve, if you have to yawn, step outside. <laughs> like in the middle of a podcast. Seriously, you, it's like th three or four times on average. I yawned yeah, once last time. Like, <laughs> no, but you're right, you're right. It was once last time. Did you even notice that yeah. too? Like, yeah. <laughs> sorry. No, you're right. It's not that you're boring. It's that I'm no, tired. I, mean, I think also when you sit for a while, you just so, naturally... Like, yeah. I... Like... Okay, I mean, this is the last time I'm saying anything. But, like, I remember when I was in college, there were, like, there were 15 people, and they were like, we're going to go watch The Godfather, but Steve, you can't talk the whole time. And I was like, screw you. I'm not watching with you. I still never seen the whole Godfather. You've, and Jay has never seen the whole Godfather either. Maybe We're going to have to have a Godfather yeah. viewing party yeah. for like one of the greatest movies of all time. By the way, you're recording this for the podcast. Fine. Oh, yeah. By the way, Amy Moran, despite living in rural Maine where there was like nothing to do except during Poland Spring, says she's seen 12 movies in her life. <laughs> You've only seen 12 movies in your life? No, that was a bit of an exaggeration. But have I've you seen never the Godfather? Seen... Nope. Wow. Thank you. Okay. God, I, no matter... Like it's like some movies are works of art. Like storytelling is a craft, right? And The Godfather is great. What movies have you seen? Amy Morin, author of Thirteen Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, author of Thirteen Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, and the others. I I see. I forget. And Thirteen Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. Thirteen Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, and the upcoming we don't know. Right. But it'll be four mentally strong people for sure. Yet to be determined. So, um, what movies have you seen? Oh dear! So I watched uh, Talladega Nights. I watched okay. Will Ferrell, Adam McKay, brilliant movie. And you know what? I'm I'm just gonna break it down a little bit more. Mm -hmm. than it's funny, right? You enjoy right, it, right? So it's very funny. But what their view is, and this is kind of contrary to let's say funny movies in the '70s, like I don't know Animal House or or whatever. Their view of the world is that people in America now feel so entitled and just blindly think. Oh, we're the best. We're the best. So you have like all of their movies. If you look at them, Talladega Nights, Anchorman, Step Brothers, um, you know, Will Ferrell stars in them, Adam McKay writes them. They're all kind of about these people who suddenly, who for some reason think they're m much better than they are. And they don't seem to have the awareness that they're being too egotistical and too, they're maybe not the best that they think they are. And it's an interesting right. in, metaphor or, or statement on Americans in, in general. Yes, and so Step Brothers, I saw that one too. <laughs> so you like Adam McKay and Will Ferrell? I do, I do. What other movies? Um, let's see, Elf with Will Ferrell. <laughs> Elf with Will Ferrell. Okay, you like Will Ferrell? Apparently, I think we get that right. Um, this is horrible. Schindler's List. Yes, I did see Schindler's All List. All right, you went from <laughs> Talladega's Nights to Schindler's List probably in one day. Uh, right. Did you like Schindler's List? Uh, yes, yes, I did like that one. So. The, I think the best business scene in any movie is in the beginning of Schindler's List when Oscar Schindler is totally broke, scrapes together any, you know, money he can, you know, I guess German marks or whatever, and then acts like the richest person ever and goes to the most expensive restaurant where he knew all the German officers would be and just wines and dines them and takes pictures of them with, you know, girls and everything and that's how he gets all his war contracts. And so I just, I thought that was such an interesting business scene. Not only do you know these movies, you can remember them quite well. <laughs> and my memory is failing in every other way. <laughs> uh, what's another one? So we, we've got four. Uh, I'm not asking you to remember all 12. <laughs> Shawshank Redemption. All right, good movie. Uh, no real comment on that other than that it was a great movie. So that, that's a movie about persistence, right? Mm -hmm. That guy played the long game for 30 years. 
So that's like right. you, you can't, and in the worst environment where it's so easy to be dissuaded, it's really a, mo a movie about patience. Right. All right. Um, let's see how far you could go. Let's see. I know, at the drive-in last summer, I saw Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that since I was a kid. Right. They were having some sort of special night where they were showing old movies. So I saw that for the first time. Um. <laughs> okay, listeners, if Amy Morin needs to see one movie, this is the author of 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. What's the one movie? Tweet it out to her. What's your Twitter? It's at Amy Morin. Amy Morin, LCSW, is in licensed clinical social worker. Amy Morin, LCSW. Mm -hmm. Tweet it out to her what movie she should see if she's going to pick one. And then if they, if there's, if there's a, a, if it's like a vote, so there's one movie gets more tweets than others, will you see that one? Absolutely. All right. So she's going to. This will be fun. <laughs> so uh, Amy was in town. So she's been on the podcast quite a bit. And not only is she the author of these amazing books like that have benefited me a lot. Uh, by the way, if you ask me to name all 13 things mentally strong people don't do, I probably, my memory, I probably couldn't remember them. But I feel like in practice, I, I follow a lot of them. Like I, I've read the books a couple of times, you know, particularly in preparing for these podcasts. We've talked and I found them to be so valuable. So great, great books. But you're also a therapist, and so I just wanted to kind of have a therapy session. Sounds good to me. Where hopefully maybe you use some of the things you've learned in writing these books. So I mentioned a topic to you beforehand, but I have a different topic also. Okay. I so this is a, this is a problem I have all the time. I feel like it's really important in anything you do to focus on process versus outcome. So when you're writing a book, for instance. You want to, you want at the moment when you're writing, you want to say, okay, I'm really trying to be the best writer I can be. Not necessarily, this is gonna win the Nobel Prize of Literature. You know, you're not focusing on even if it's going to get published. Like you might be thinking about that a little bit, but you really are focusing on the process of being a good writer and doing good research and saying something interesting. And I always feel that's important. Everything I do, whether it's business or job or even stand-up comedy or getting better at a game, but there's always that itch where you can't get rid of the need for validation. Mm -hmm. So like when, when you're, when I'm writing a book, I do want it to be on a bestseller list or I want lots of people. And it was a natural thing, but I'll, or if I make a post on Facebook, I want lots of likes right. or on Instagram or on Twitter and I'll get disappointed. It's like the stupidest thing to get disappointed about. Or if I, perform stand-up comedy and, you know, for whatever reason, the one time out of whenever, people don't laugh. It's Maybe there's 15 people in the audience. I'll get so disappointed. And how do you, how do you kind of wean yourself off of, or, or let's say you're in a social hierarchy, like at work or at a party or in a neighborhood or in a family even. How do you wean yourself off the need for validation from the people you who are, who are in your social hierarchy? Good question. So, well, it's one that I think about every day. And I think more people should think about this. So, uh, and I'll, I'll give you more, sorry, I'll give you more of a specific example. Like, let's even just say for stand-up comedy, I feel like really I should be just focusing on the process of being better and improving and learning. But instead I'm just wondering, what does this person think of me? What does this person think of me? What does that club owner think of me? What does this other comedian think of me? Like, I get nervous. Right. And I'm a I'm roughly successful and 
mature and older, and why do I care so much? I feel like I'm too old to care. But isn't that funny though? I think we all have that need to to think, okay, I want to impress somebody. I want people to like me. I want to, and people who say, I don't care if, what people think of me. I mean, obviously you do. Right. It's, I think the more people say that, the more they actually care. <laughs> I think so too. I think a lot of times it's this defense mechanism that says, I don't, I don't care about what anybody thinks. Well, yeah. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to keep announcing that you didn't care, right? Right. That's a good point. Uh, so I guess a few things. Focus on what you can control, right? If we went back to the 13 things of what drains you of mental strength is trying to uh, control everything. So focus on what you can con control would be your own behavior. You can control how much time, how much energy, how much effort you put in. And you can't necessarily control how people respond to that. And there's a there's this misconception that if you think about success, people will say, well, if I just picture great things happening, then, then I'll make it happen. So if somebody say... Uh, we're practicing comedy. So rather than sit down and put in a lot of effort coming up with, with these great jokes, they just imagine the audience laughing or they think I get a standing ovation and everybody loves me. It's almost like when you think that way, your brain feels as if you if you were already successful. And then you studies will show you put in a little less effort in practicing or preparing because you think you've already achieved it. Right, and then you'll get disappointed. Right, and there's so much, you know, I see that, I was seeing it in my therapy office so much where somebody, if they wanted to lose weight or get out of debt or change their life in some way, they had this notion of, I just have to think it and then I become it. But rather than think about the process of what it was going to take to reach that goal, they only imagine themselves celebrating at the finish line. And that's not particularly helpful. So you really have to think more about what do I have to go through? And part of what you go through sometimes is going to be rejection. There's going to be pain. But if you can picture yourself dealing with that in a successful way rather than always winning at the end, it's much more beneficial. So so I, I like that uh, instead of picturing the, the finish line, picturing how you would deal with the different obstacles that could come during the process. I like that sort of visualization. That seems like a good technique. Right. Knowing, okay, if I'm if I stand up there, maybe only one person laughs. Well, what do you do? How are you going to respond to that? Right. And that seems like almost a safe way to practice that because it's going to happen. Happens to people doing any activity for 30 years. It's going to happen to beginners too. So, but the other thing is I find when people picture success, the problem is you picture success when you're at the starters line and you're picturing the finish line, but but life is not a kind of carefully measured race. So what happens is when you're at the starting line, you don't really know what's going to happen 10 feet later. Like you're, you're going to be more educated about what success means. Right. And I'm probably mixing metaphors here somewhere, but uh, I find that as I learn, as I get better at something, the understanding of what the finish line is changes. So it doesn't even make sense to picture the finish line. So for instance, if I start writing a book, I might have this idea, well, I'm going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. But as you learn about the publishing industry, you might have to make a choice. Am I aiming for the New York Times bestseller list or am I aiming to make a lot of money, which might be different, right? which might provoke a different process to begin with. So, uh, uh, you know, do I want to hit intellectuals or do I want to write a romance novel that you know has lots of readers but probably won't make it to the bestseller list because uh, they you know they, don't, they there's some types of books they don't like to have on there uh, so, so I, I think that's the other thing that's the problem of just picturing success and never changing it like fixing your your definition of success you're, you're absolutely right and 
if we used your example, but I was a therapist. I didn't plan on becoming an author. And so in the beginning, I thought, oh, yeah, you hit all the bestsellers list. And that's sort of the epitome. That's the best thing in the world. And then when you learn how what goes into the list, how, they, how they're made, what that actually means, you think, oh, okay, maybe, maybe that's not as important as I thought. And I think if we took that into all areas of our life, what do you think is a successful career? What do you imagine is a successful relationship? And that sometimes your idea changes, but so many people I think don't change that. They keep their idea of what they once imagined or they romanticized what the outcome was going to be. And then they forget, oh yeah, maybe that's not exactly what I want. And it's okay to take a sharp left turn and do something different. Yeah, because you might maybe like in the process of hypothetically writing a book, you're you're doing all your research, you're doing your all your interviews, and you realize, oh, there might be a different opportunity here. Maybe I'm going to make this a course, or maybe I'm going to make this, you know, or maybe I'm just going to make a completely left turn. I'm going to start painting because I enjoy that creative outlet better. I don't enjoy this creative outlet as much. But if you just keep fixating on, oh, New York Times bestseller list is the only way people are going to like me, then you could be in trouble. You could end up being very miserable. Yes, and I think for a lot of people, that's that's a sticking point that they set this goal and then they, at all costs, they strive. To say, I have to reach this goal, or I told people this was what I was going to do, so now I'm going to do it. And to bring it back to mental strength, there's a misconception that if you quit, you give up, you change course. That somehow it means you're you're too weak to keep going. But sometimes it takes more strength to say no. That's actually not what I want to do because otherwise pride gets in the way and you try to force it to happen. How do you know when to quit something? I think that a few things. You just ask yourself, is this in line with my values? Is this something I still really want to do? Is the cost uh, of what it's going to take to get there worth it? Because sometimes you might think, oh, I want to lose five pounds. And then you figure out, well, to lose five pounds, I have to go to the gym. I can't eat lunch, whatever it is. And you think, is that really what I want? Is this really worth it? And maybe it's not. Or uh, sometimes I think it's also about knowing, am I just tired? Because we tend to give up when we're tired or we're frustrated. But if you're just tired or frustrated, keep going. It's not until you figure out, well, what's this really costing me? And is the reward going to be worth it? And if not, it's okay to change course and come up with a different strategy or a different goal. Well, that's interesting. So if you're tired or feeling frustrated, that's probably not a good time to make any decision. Right. Or if you're, or even if you're angry at someone else, your neighbor or whatever, or your family member, probably not a good time to make a decision because your brain's firing off all the wrong chemicals. What are other times you would say you shouldn't make a decision? And what are times when you're probably in an optimal state to make a decision? So I think it's optimal when you can base your uh, decision on some logic and some emotion. So uh, when you're feeling really emotional, no matter what that emotion is, maybe it's even excitement because that's why people fall prey sometimes to get rich quick schemes because they're so excited about something that they forget, oh yeah, there's a downside to it. So I always encourage people in my therapy office to to write write it down, write down a list. What's the pros and cons of doing this? What's the pros and cons of not doing this? And just seeing it on paper and having uh, having a list to, to read over can help raise your logic and balance out some of that emotion. So wait, write, write a list of... So let's say you wanted to, to, you set a goal for yourself. What example should we use? You're going to... Well, let's just say this podcast. I want to have 3 million downloads an episode or else I'm a failure. Okay. (laughs) And people won't like me. And somehow, why doesn't it ever work out for me? Why don't things happen for me? And so on. So, you know, in that case, okay, you're thinking, should I should I quit? Should I give up? What you might do is come up with a list of reasons why you should, let's say you decide, yeah, I really want to do it, but I'm frustrated. Come up with a list of reasons why you want to keep going. 
And then on the days when you're feeling really frustrated, go back to reading that list mm. and it helps balance out your logic. Then if you're thinking, okay, I'm gonna quit, just take a step back and say, is it just because I had a bad day? I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm angry lately, or I'm impatient. And then maybe you write a list. Here's the pros and cons of quitting. And then on the other side of the list, you're gonna write, what are the pros and cons of not quitting? And when you do the pro and con of both, then sometimes it just helps you put things in better perspective. And the other thing you can always do is just say, if I if my friend came to me and said, I have to do this or, or else, uh, so I think I'm gonna quit because I'm not getting enough downloads, what would you say to your friend? Hey, that's an awesome idea, or maybe, maybe you should keep going, or because it takes some of the emotion out of it too when you can give somebody else advice. That's why it's usually so much easier when somebody calls you and says, I'm struggling with this. What do you think I should do? That's really interesting. Like, is that kind of a technique you learn in therapy school or whatever? Because <laughs> like the reason I ask is whenever I would have like a relationship issue, my therapist would say, okay, imagine your daughter uh, is coming to you with the same, like she translates it so my daughter would have that issue. Imagine your daughter is coming to you with the same issue. What advice would you give? And then it's like so easy to give advice. Or imagine your business partner is coming to you with the same type of uh, question. What would you advice you give? Because I've been in a lot of different, I've been in more businesses than relationships. And so, uh, and then the answer is instant. Right. And then you sort of say, okay, well, that suggests the answer here, but usually it's not what you want to tell yourself and the therapist knows that it's her or him his insidious way of getting you to to see the answer instead of just telling you right right because as a therapist i think well the answer is clear on my end what you should do but it doesn't do you any good if i just start giving giving out advice so so but okay we're veering around and i'm gonna get back to validation but you make a good point if the, if the therapist who's probably the most trained and has seen the most situations probably similar to yours and so, and, and outcomes of those situations, he or she probably does have an answer that works or is close to working, but they don't, they don't tell you because they know you're probably not going to listen. So what are good or self-help books, for instance, if no one really listens to even the advice of professionals? You know, I think it's helpful to get advice about, you know, how you can change your life, that sort of a thing. But sometimes people think that therapy is more like an advice column that you read in the newspaper where somebody wrote into, you know, Dear Abby. So they'll say, okay, should I should I end my relationship? Should I switch careers? Well, I can't tell you if you should do that because I don't really know what's going on inside your head other than what you tell me. I want you to figure out, should you do that? And then sometimes the answer is, well, you'll be happy either way. You just have to make a decision. Sometimes People come in and I'm quite sure they're going to be miserable no matter what decision they make. And they're looking for me to give them the the answer and then they'll blame me. Well, my therapist said I had to do that or my therapist won't let me go back to college. And I don't want people to think I'm dictating their lives. I want them to know they're in charge. I want to empower them to make those choices. But why do, they, why do like self-help writers, what, you know, given that no one's going to listen anyway to most advice and most even self-help advice that they read in books. Do you think it's uh do you think do you think that's even like a worthwhile industry like these, you know, most self-help books? Just cuz like again, most self-help books are oh, think positive or do this, do that. Most of it even when it's it might not even be right or wrong and it's hard to follow. No one's ever going to really follow the advice that they read. Right, and as a self-help author, I can say that. But I don't think you're a self-help author. You wrote your story, yeah, and you and here are the thirteen things you did. So you, so yes, you titled it thirteen things mentally strong people don't do because then you wrote about what you did, and then you backed it up by all this research. Then people can do with it what they want. Right. You're not saying do this. You're just telling your story and then what the research supports. 
Right. And I find that so many people read self-help books. They feel really good when they're reading it. They're like, yeah, I'm going to change my life. And then they get to the last chapter, they read it, they close the book, and then they don't do anything. And so then, because, but they felt good while they were reading it. So then they grab the next self-help book and they read that one. And I would have so many people come into my therapy office and, and they had read stacks and stacks of books. They could regurgitate all sorts of stuff that they'd read, but they never took any action. And it was really missing that piece of, well, just reading a book isn't going to change your life unless you do something different. But for a lot of people, it just became more about if I consume all this information, then somehow my life will magically change. But they didn't actually want to do anything. Well, it, it's interesting because so I've had almost 500 guests on this podcast, like Jay, do we know how many guests? I, f I forget the number of guests we've had on this podcast. More than 500. More than 500? I mean, we hit 500 episodes. Uh, we didn't do anything special for episode number 500? I could be totally wrong. Give me one second. All right. So, but roughly 500, give or take. <laughs> and, and I've inter interviewed, like you, very inspirational people who have been through things and then wrote about it and give very good advice. I always wonder, like, what would my life be like for 450. 450. Okay, good. I, I didn't want to think we missed our sesquicentennial <laughs> or whatever. Uh, I always wonder, like, how has my life changed? Because the reason I started this podcast is so I could get better. So I could call the authors of all my favorite books and have an excuse to, to talk to them for an hour and ask them any question I want. And I always wonder, like, has my life actually gotten better? I still get angry. I still get stressed about things. I still have this need for validation that I think is, you know, maybe almost inappropriate for someone with my life experience. And I don't know. I always wonder this, like, what am I, how am I benefiting from this podcast? Oh, and then I get to meet and talk to people all the time that, that are interesting people. You know, well, maybe it goes back to the, you know, that quote about don't wish your life was easier, just wish you were stronger, something along those lines to say, I mean, I think a lot of that stuff never goes away. I mean, you've written a book, I've written a book that's supposed to help other people, but it doesn't mean I don't struggle with those exact same things. And I'm giving out advice on how to not deal with it, but it didn't magically make those problems go away necessarily. I just have more tools to to deal with stuff. I guess that's right. So like, uh, you know, again, this feeling of being, you know, accepted by your peers, this feeling of validation, uh, almost in an unnatural way, like, that's why the dopamine hit you get from getting a Facebook, lots of Facebook. Like, like if I write an article and I post it on Facebook and it doesn't get the number of likes within a day that I think it should get or that I, or it's below average, I start to think, oh, what did I do wrong? Like what, you know, I get upset. I can't, I, I didn't get valid. People are no, people don't like me as much, you know, and I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to wean myself off of this, this need for validation. So I guess two things come to mind. The first one is, you know, instead of thinking uh, that you that you shouldn't do it, you can accept it. Okay, there's a part of me that wants validation. I I didn't get it from this post. How do you feel? Do you feel sad? Do you feel disappointed? Do you feel angry, embarrassed? Probably a host of strange emotions that get stirred up. And then knowing how do I sit with those emotions mm. and that I can stand it, and that it's tolerable rather than thinking I, I shouldn't feel this way and rather than fighting it or thinking this is terrible that I feel this way or... Uh, you know, too old and too smart to still struggle with this, to know it's okay, I feel that way, but uh, I can cope with it. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe right, maybe like accepting it. Okay, now I'm feeling, now I'm feeling that usual feeling of I didn't get the validation I needed. Maybe kind of observing the itch makes you want to scratch it less. 
Right. Uh, and so, okay, so this is related then to, you know, a few weeks ago, Steve and I were on the podcast talking about toxic people and what you do. And it's always easy to say again, okay, here's what you should do. Here's what you should not do, you know, blah, blah, blah. But uh, sometimes I just can't help it. I'll think, I'll wake up and first thing in the morning, I'll think about someone who wronged me five years ago. And I just wake up thinking about that person and like thinking, oh, you know, why did they do that? I didn't do anything wrong. Why did they do that? And I'm, and I'm really like angry. And then I even wonder, should I send them an email? Like, why did they treat me like that then? And of course, the, I know what the correct thing to do is, is just stop playing this movie in my head. I can change this movie. Is It's benefiting me not at all. Like you said, I can't control this now. But it's hard to actually follow the advice. Right. So, and then what happens? How do you How do you finally get out of that? Or what gets you out of that when you're thinking about somebody? I mean, I guess I tell myself this is a waste of time to keep thinking about it. So I do sort of follow the advice that either I have given other people or people have given me. But it's pretty consistent that I'm upset at somebody at some point during the day that is, and it's an irrational upset. Okay. Like, like I know logic, intellectually it's irrational. Like there's no, nothing I could do. It doesn't really affect my life at all if I ignore it completely. Uh, you know, but again, it's, it's part, it's sort of tied up in this need for validation that, oh, even five years ago, someone who I thought was my this or my that, I mean, a friend or a relationship or whatever turned so quickly for reasons I don't understand. And so then I feel, and I get, I, it's sort of like I outsource my self-esteem to somebody who should really have no effect on my life at all. And so then what do you start thinking? So you start thinking about somebody that, that wronged you in some way, and then do you start to think, yeah, I should have recognized sooner that this person wasn't a good person? Do you start to beat yourself up or do you Yeah, just... yeah, sometimes I do that. Sometimes okay. I say, man, why did I put up with it for as long as I did, this behavior? Uh, like I should have just right away said, oh, okay, this is not a good person to have tried to get validation from. Um, other times I just find myself angry, like that they just shouldn't have done what they did. Like, what did I do to deserve it? Or other times, yeah, other times I think they're irrational and I want to argue with them about how irrational they are. <laughs> so there's like maybe some combination of those three things. Do you ever email people? Do you ever follow up with people that... No, I never angry? say, hey, why did you do this? Or, hey, we need to talk about this. Some people, people give me the advice oh, maybe you should talk to them and have a coffee and have a, be really honest. But I feel like there's nothing good comes from that. So like what could what possible good come from that? We've already been distant in these ways that we weren't before when we were friends. So the relationship's already changed. So what am I hoping to achieve out of right. talking to them or, or arguing with them or whatever? So So I never actually confront them or anything. I just, I really do try to move on. But then the next day I wake up angry again, even go to their Facebook page, like angry. What are, oh, why is this person now liking this person's posts? Is that not my friend too? And uh, is this person disloyal? So, you know, really stupid teenage type things. Right. And I'm 51. <laughs> and how much time does it take up out of your day if you had to guess? I don't know. How much time, Steve or Robin, how much time do you think it takes <laughs> out of my day? Because you hear when I'm part of the time I'm thinking about this. 
Half hour to an hour, maybe. Like, oh, yeah. so it's hour, quite a bit. Half hour to an hour. Yeah. I see. Okay, so then. And by the way, I think I'm pretty good at, in general, managing my emotions and and so on. But I'll get. But I'm emotional. I'll get emotional about these things, no matter what the logic is. Right. And it just comes out of the blue that maybe you think of somebody or is there something that reminds you of this person or? No, it'll be out of the blue. It's okay. like almost like every day it's like I'm picking randomly out of a lottery bucket and that's the person I'm going to be upset at that day. <laughs> so then I would wonder since it's so consistent, is it is there like some sort of common theme? Does it all come back to something? Is there something about? You're nodding your head. What, what's the common theme? Well, I think you're trying to figure out who you are in terms of your in your space with your you know and how you're dealing with people so and the reoccurring thing comes up maybe the same you, you actually do the same thing maybe you have the same reactions with these people yeah like maybe um in terms of like figuring out who i make maybe i'm insecure and if someone without any reason that i could figure out suddenly i don't know starts hating me Makes me makes me insecure about like well what happened I can't figure it out and I'm just I don't know whether to be angry or upset at myself or did I do something wrong or I I can't figure it out it's like a puzzle I can't figure out and so my mind always wants to do a puzzle. So yeah, in that case, I wonder if when you when you look back at these things that happen, if you think that there's always whether you blame yourself for thinking I was too passive, I was too naive, I was too something, and because of this happened or and also, if there's then a part of you that thinks there's something wrong with me, that these people uh, always end up treating me like this, or this is how it always ends, versus thinking I'm a I'm not a good judge of character. I I do think that often. Okay. <laughs> like everybody always says, oh, I'm a really good judge of character. I am not a good judge of character. <laughs> I'm the one person I know who is not a good judge judge of character. And you know that about yourself now. Yeah, because also, and I'm not even saying I like, some people say I'm not a good judge of character because I like everyone. I don't like everyone. Right. <laughs> Sometimes right. I hate people and I'm wrong. Sometimes sure. I like people and I'm wrong. Sure. It's like random. Okay. <laughs> I, I try, I hope I'm, I get better over time. And maybe the way I got better is by realizing I'm not a good judge of character. Uh, but, and I got better in business at it, but not in every other part, area of life. Interesting. And do you think does that sort of theme come up? Do you when you look back, do you think why did I trust that person? Why did I let that person in my life? Why yeah. did I? Okay. And then I beat myself up like why did I let this person say this to me over and over again? And I then ran circles trying to solve the problem when actually maybe they had the problem and not me. Right. So then when you're back and you're thinking about them and you think, gosh, you know this person either took advantage of me or they they kept treating me poorly. How often do you get mad at yourself versus just getting mad at the other person, or is it a mixture? 50, yeah, mixture, 50-50. Okay. Uh, it's not a mixture. It's really one or the other. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll either get angry at them, or I think, like, why did I put up with that for so long? So, and do you ever focus on what you learned from having somebody in your in your life that you think you shouldn't have or behavior that you tolerated too much? Yeah, but that's a smaller percentage. So I assume I learned something, which is why I'm no longer, let's say, pursuing validation from that person. Regardless, mm -hmm. like I said, I never go back and I never approach them again, whether it's a friend or a relationship or a business partnership. I never go back and, and say, you know, you did this and that was bad. Or, mm -hmm. you know, I never go back to, to, to the source because I figure there's really no use or purpose in that at all. Um, but, 
you know, I don't know. I don't know if that answer is. It does. I'm just, yeah, because I'm thinking about, all right, well, if you can flip the switch sometimes to think, all right, at the time I didn't understand myself as well or I didn't understand other people as well. What did I learn from it? And sometimes to know, all right, well, what did I learn? I guess I learned patience or I learned how to speak up for myself or I learned a little bit uh, so that when you start to get upset and get angry, even though somebody's behavior was wrong and they um, shouldn't have treated you in an in a unhealthy way, say, well, what became of it in a way that I'm no longer still allowing yes. that person? I, right. So I do, usually those threads of thought end up in me trying to learn something, but it's still like this addictive kind of thinking. Like I think about one specific situation. It's like, oh, here's what I should have said in response. And, um, or I should have just been honest up front about this or this or this, you know, that was making me unhappy. And so I try to learn in that way. And, and, but I hope that in the future, in similar situations, which I can never predict, I'll now behave in, in ways in which I think I've learned. Or maybe I'm just kind of like scratching that itch and saying, oh, I should have said this and this and this. Like instead, I would just let them walk right all over me. Right. And of course, we all do that. I think sometimes we replay a conversation. And now that we have 10 more years of thinking about it, we can come up with a much better response than we could at the time when we were emotional. So it becomes so easy now to think, oh, I should have said this. I should have done that. Do you, What do you get out of this? Because you end up spending a lot of time. What do you get out of spending time being angry and thinking about people that... I think that's a good question because obviously you have you, there's sort of this idea that you have to be getting something out of everything you're doing or else you wouldn't be doing it. So, but I don't know the answer. I feel like I shouldn't be, a, you know, doing this obsessive thinking. And it's not, it's not every single day. It's not all the time. It's not all day long. But I just don't even really like it when I do it at all. So, uh, I don't know what I get out of it. I think. I don't know. I can't, what what does one get out of something like that? Like, what's a possible answer there? For a lot of people, so anger gives us energy. So for some people, it helps them get fired up. So even when they think about something that happened ten years ago, they still feel really angry, and and that feels better than being sad, or it feels better than being embarrassed. So that's a, that is a good response. So I can say that my book "Choose Yourself" comes out of that type of response. So let's say I write a book and no publisher wants to publish it, and I get angry, then. The way I've learned to deal with it is okay. I'm going to self-publish, and I, or I'll, I'm going to find other ways to publish this, or I'm going to turn this into a podcast episode, or I'm going to do so. so I, I'm really good at getting angry and then figuring out way. When there's a gatekeeper, I get angry if I think they're being stupid towards me. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know. But if I think they're being stupid towards me or my ideas, then instead, then. I'll take what I can. I'll say, is there, I will rationally say, is there something I could learn from this response? I'll try that first. And then I'll every day try to figure out ways around the gatekeeper. And that's been very successful. So self publishing, I've made much more money than traditional publishing, for instance. Or if I can't get a TV show on, I instantly know, okay, I'll figure out, I'll, I'll make a YouTube show or shoot a video and upload it to Amazon as if it were a TV show or whatever. I'll always think of, ways around uh, a problem. If someone is, you know, a colleague of mine and I need something from them, I'll figure out ways to to go around them to find out or get what I need. So so I'm usually good at that that kind of, when I when I go in that direction, that's very useful. And and that's the choose without the anger, that's sort of the choose yourself 
kind of philosophy. It's just probably anger initially fueled that. Right, and because I think sometimes anger gets a bad rap. People think anger is an unhealthy emotion or that it's a negative emotion, but really it can be quite helpful in a lot of circumstances. And in this case, when you're thinking about something uh, like that happened 10 years ago with somebody, does that give you energy? Does it give you anything like physically, emotionally that is helpful? I don't, I don't think so. So I don't know why I do it. Well, you know, so then you differentiate sort of between ruminating and problem solving. Ruminating is where you just keep replaying, rehashing things that you can't fix, playing it over and over in your head, uh, which we know isn't helpful. It's linked to depression. It's linked to uh, all sorts of negative outcomes and feeling bad about ourselves versus problem solving. Well, obviously, you can't solve a problem if it happened a conversation you had 10 years ago with somebody. So then, but how do you shift your focus to then think, okay, how do I, how do I make this more productive? Do I, I mean, maybe part of it is saying if I come up with a better response, then somehow that feels more productive in my life. I sort of change the ending of the story or I remember what would James now say if that same conversation happened? Maybe if he framed it that way to say current day James would have said or done this just as a reminder. But that's almost like part of the ruminating, like, <laughs> oh, if they said this now, I would say this. So, and you could probably go down the whole rabbit hole and keep going. Like it just happened. It just happened to me this morning. I was thinking about a conversation I had probably three years ago, and I was thinking to myself, "Why didn't I say the obvious thing that should be said? Instead, I just like, you know, let someone yell at me, and you know, when when the answer was clear that I could have just stood up for myself and said this, and they would have backed off right away, probably." And then did you come to any conclusions of why you didn't? Yeah, I think I think I was just afraid to stand up for myself. That they're that they're I don't know, but I don't know why I would be afraid, but I was. Okay. And so then then you thought about all right, now I would do something different. And did you replay that in your head? Yeah. And then does, do you feel better or do you still feel angry no, and upset? No, then I get angry like, why didn't I just do that then? Three years not so long ago, I was the same person, more or less. Right. I mean, I've had a lot of changes since then, but still. I wonder, what if you set a time limit? What if you said, when you start thinking about something, if you said, I've got five minutes to think about it, and then when the five minutes is over, you said, okay, done. I, th I think that works, and I've tried stuff like that, and that does work. So, so a lot of the things we're saying, I guess, have work for me. So we've said kind of like imagine the advice you would give your daughter or your business colleague. Imagine um you know put this thing you just said put a, put a timeline on it. Uh, uh sometimes I literally like if it's a gatekeeper situation, I literally list and write down the things all all the possible ways I can get around this problem I'm having. So instead of viewing the the person as my problem I remove, I abstract away from the person. I say this obstacle is the problem and how, what are the ways around the obstacle? So I remove kind of the personal aspect of it away because I figure you can't, I'm not going to change people. That's a good one. So I have to, I have to work around. So yes, I do these things and then, but it's always like, it's like the whack-a-mole games. Like always then something, some new situation pops up, which has triggered my insecurity or something like that from, from the past. So, you know, since it does keep popping up, I would wonder if you if you kept a log of it where you said, you know, just a couple sentences every day to then just try to find what the common thread is. There's a hmm. theme, I suspect, going on of just thinking, okay, the old James didn't used to do X, Y, or Z, or uh, I allow these people in my life for X, Y, and Z reasons, but then the new James, and then f fill in the blank sort of to say, okay, I used to be that way, here's the new me, um, 
whether there's a belief that you hold on to about yourself or some something that's, I guess, kind of stuck. And and I think if you looked at a whole bunch of, of these incidents that happened and kind of kept track of them, I bet in, within two weeks you'd have a really good idea of the common thread and, and knowing, all right, why do I keep doing this? And maybe if you just recognize that, figure out how do I honor that, that that's some of the things I struggled with then, and then how do I make sure it's not going to happen now? Maybe then you would feel like you're able to let it go more. Yeah, I guess, what about cases where you're just simply disappointed also? Like, oh, I used to have such a great relationship with this person. I wish it never changed. And uh, and you just get disappointed about it. Even though it's like out of your control, it's done, it's over. I'm not talking about romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about any kind of relationship. So... You know, and I think that's part of the grief process. Sometimes when we talk about grief, we usually talk about death, but there's grief in when anything ends. So even a friendship ends and maybe you just sort of lost contact. There's not like a time where you officially, we usually don't break up with our friends. Usually it's just sort of drift apart or something like that. But what about if it's an irrational end? What I view as an irrational end where I think like, what, this this shouldn't have happened. And so then you just you just keep. Then I get angry. And is it at somebody, or is that the situation, or yourself, or who might you get angry at? Let's say the person. Okay. Like why? Why did they all of a sudden do that? I'll think to myself. Well, and again, I think then it goes back to to sort of just grieving and the the weird thing. Like at least if somebody t- gives us an answer that says you know, when you're in the third grade and your friend moves away to the other part of the country, okay, it makes sense. We're not going to have contact. But when when you're an adult, it doesn't always make sense. Yeah, or like, let's say with one of my kids once, when she was very little, um, she had a best friend and then they went, go, summer happens, so they didn't see each other for the summer. And then she comes back, my daughter goes back to school. The friend now, for whatever reason, no longer talks to her, has joined another clique and that whole clique doesn't talk to my daughter and I remember this was a real painful year for my daughter. And the only solution really was kind of pulling her out of that school. It was a very small school, so there wasn't really that many choices for friends. And this was her best friend. And she was so disappointed and never got really a reason of what had happened. But that's kind of the way I sometimes feel. And, you know, you don't really know what to what to do in those situations because it's out of her, like in my daughter's case, it was out of her control. There's nothing she could have done. It's not like she's going to say, hey, we really need to discuss. Right. Because they were like in fourth grade or whatever. It's not like they would have had a rational discussion. Or maybe they would have. I don't know. Maybe kids have better discussions about this than adults. But what do you do in situations like that? So then I think it's about the story you tell yourself. So while somebody might say the story is my friend went crazy and ditched me versus somebody else's, their story is I messed up, I wasn't good enough, and it's my fault. Uh, so two very different stories could or, come out of the same circumstance. Or, or something in the middle, which is like, which, uh, I, what did I do wrong? I don't know. So that's right. sort of in the middle. And that's kind of the most painful of all. It is, because then you're, you're stuck thinking, yeah, did I mess up? Because if I don't know if I messed up, how am I going to make sure that this doesn't happen next time? Right. Versus if you think, all right, well, if my friend messed up, my friend did something again, how do I know the next friend isn't going to mess up? What can I do differently? And then what could happen? I'll use my... I'm throwing my daughter under the bus and using her as an example when it could easily be me. But what end, ends up happening is sometimes you end up pandering so that, oh, maybe I did some, maybe if I change behavior, they'll like me again. Right. Or whatever. Right. And so I think- I'm it, extra nice. And they'll so be nice back. people do that, or I see plenty of adults that do that too, or adults who have gone through a, a divorce and then they think if they're dating again, they have to behave in a certain way because they don't want it to happen and they want to get hurt again. And- the truth is we usually don't have those answers and it's hard to look 
and think, well, what did did I mess up? Did I do something? What are, what's the likelihood that I mess up? So then I think it comes down to just figuring out what's my responsibility in this. And maybe it's 10% responsibility, maybe it's 80%, but figuring out uh, just realistically, sometimes I'll have people draw a responsibility pie, we'll call it, where we figure out how much of this do you think is your fault? Sometimes it will say 90%. Well, okay, well, what are some other reasons why this may have happened? And just trying to figure out, is that a rational thing to think it's completely your fault or that it's mostly your fault or completely somebody else's fault? And just paying attention to the story that you tell yourself and then knowing you may never have answers. There's going to be a lot of uncertainty and learning how to be more comfortable uh, with that uncertainty and sitting with it. Yeah, I think again, it's like you you bring it up again, like being having this negative emotion and kind of accepting it rather than pushing it away or trying to solve it like a puzzle. Right, because I think a lot of times you could put in so much time and energy and effort into fighting however it is that you feel versus just allowing yourself to recognize, okay, this is uncomfortable, but I can handle it. When you put all your effort and energy into tolerating it and dealing with it and coping with it rather than just fighting it, you get better much faster. So this is related to actually the discussion we just had about when you know when to quit something. So I guess here we're talking about quitting some kind of emotional behavior that's not serving us the way we think it could be. But like, you know, sometimes I find myself ruminating over, oh, I do all this work here, I do all this work here, I do all this work here, and it's it's hard to figure out which things to trim, which things to expand, and I get frustrated. And it's the same thing. Sometimes you have to just sit with that frustration and not, you might not have an answer. You might, you can't, sometimes you can't solve every puzzle. Right. And I think for a lot of us, it's just, we don't want to, we don't want to feel that way. So then we try to fight it. We put in so much energy into thinking I should, I should feel differently. And then you're just wasting more time rather than just knowing, okay, I feel this, whatever it is, label it. That takes a lot of the sting out of it sometimes when mm. you just say, this is how I feel. And, and that's okay. Your feelings aren't necessarily wrong. You have some control over how you feel. So when you're upset to know what, what are the skills and tools I have to calm myself down? Or when I'm feeling really down, what are the skills and tools I have to help cheer myself up? Like and, when's the last time you felt really down? Oh, let's like irrationally. Uh, irrationally. Oh, uh, probably a couple of weeks ago I had to travel and I didn't want to travel. And I was finding myself thinking, oh, I don't want to go and I have to do this and all the things. You need to come up here for this podcast. And it wasn't this <laughs> one, <laughs> but it was another event because I often will uh, you know, overcommit myself when it comes to, to uh, going places because I want to go places and speak at cool events. But then you know, the day before I think, oh, I don't have time for this and I, I don't want to go. And... And then I remind myself, well, I don't have to go. <laughs> if I don't want to, I could call up and cancel at the last minute. I probably wouldn't do that, but it's an option. And so just reminding myself of that, it's, it's up to me. I have the option to do that if I want. And how do I want to spend my time? Who do I want to spend it with? Yeah, one person once gave me the advice, don't take away from the things you love to do more of the things you hate. Right. So sometimes we feel we have all these obligations to do certain things. But in order to find the time to meet those obligations, you have to give up on, a cliche is family time, for instance. Right. And that's something you might love, but you feel like, oh, I got to do though this other thing. And uh, I thought that was very good advice. But consequently, it's made me super busy because then I do both things and now I'm twice as busy as I expected to be. Right. And that's tough too. And then to figure out, am I juggling everything? How are my priorities? But just knowing what are what are my values? And 10 years from now, when I look back at this decade of my life, am I going to be 
impressed with how I spent it. I'll be happy with the with the priorities that I had and how I spent my time and who I spent it with. But like, what's your average day at home? Like you, it seems like you have a pretty good lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, which is right. I can't you live complain. on a boat. Yeah, so I live on a boat. So I spend a lot of time either writing um, articles for various outlets and and doing interviews to promote my books, or I end up traveling to to do really cool stuff. And so then when I put that into perspective, I think I really don't have much of a space to complain. In fact, so this is. In, kind of embarrassing to admit. A couple of years ago, I was in a very similar space. I was traveling. I don't remember where I was going, but I had that moment of, I wish I didn't have to go. Kind of all those thoughts about, I just have so much to do and I don't have time for this. And I talked to one of my neighbors and his son has diabetes and he's getting his leg amputated that day. Mm. And I think, okay, <laughs> here I am complaining that I'm going to jump on a plane. That, you going to go to that, Paris for a class. A ticket that somebody else paid for to go to a speaking engagement that I'm getting paid for. And I'm complaining. And so now when I'm tempted to complain, I just think, remember that day somebody was getting their leg amputated? But is, is that a little bit cliche like, like, okay, no matter what bad thing is happening to you, there's always something worse that you could think of that's happening to somebody. And just like there's always something better happening right. to somebody. So is that a little, like, does that really work to go down that angle? Like eventually, you know, it's all, or, you know, sort of happiness is this relative thing. Like that person is sad to get your leg amputated, but it's not like they're going to be up depressed for the rest of their lives. They'll figure out how to be right. happy with that. It, 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 research tends to show that people sort of return to their base level of happiness or however their emotions are. Yeah. And typically I don't tell people, you know, when you're complaining about something, think about the starving children, because it doesn't tend to help us. It tends to remind us that, you know, of sympathy, and we tend to actually feel bad when we start thinking about all these other problems, and then we get angry with ourselves. But something about that day was just a sticking point for me that reminded me of, I get to do all this stuff. And I changed the language in my head and just to remind myself that nobody's forcing me to do any of this stuff. I get to do it. Ah, so that's a technique too. And I think maybe I learned it from you, um, changing I have to to I get to. Right, right. So I think that does work. Like I do that technique tends to tends to work. So there's all these different little techniques that you have to sort of remind yourself of all the time because like it's sort of like the brain wants to come up with problems. Yes. And, and at least mine does. I don't know what anyone else's does, but the brain always wants to come up with problems. And I have to say, okay, well, what are what's my repertoire of s skills or tools that I've practiced because you have to practice those muscles for them to work. You know what? What? What tool can I pull out to to apply to this situation? And that tends to work as long as I'm. It depends on how deep I'm into the rumination. Sometimes the rumination is like, no, I'm not. You're not letting go of this. We're sticking to this problem, right? And you're going to keep obsessing for a while. And you bring up a good point because I think a lot of people think you know my life will be better when when I have a different job, when I have more money, when I get into this new relationship or when the kids move out. But no, problems are going to follow you. Oh, when the kids move out, it's definitely better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But then your brain, as you say, your brain will come up with problems no matter what, that it's just going to be stuck and it's, your life isn't going to magically be cured of any unhealthy thoughts and uncomfortable emotions. They're going to follow you. It's all about how you deal with them. Yeah, So, so I think some of these tools that we spoke about here which also overlap, you know, what we've talked about or what's in your book, 13, all your 13 things mentally strong X don't right. do. Uh, I think this is all useful stuff. It's just kind of a matter of, it's like a muscle. You have to just keep practicing doing it as you get 
so you get better in each situation of, you know, I think I'll never stop waking up angry at someone, but I think reducing the amount of time and reducing the intensity of it are kind of two goals, say. I think it's a great place to start and then and then to figure out, you know, how much does it affect your life? How big of a problem is it? How much, how important is it to get rid of it? And you might decide that this is just you and that that's okay. And that for 30 minutes every day or every other day that you're likely to do this. And once you accept it, you might find that, that then you're okay with it and it doesn't seem to affect a lot more of your life than maybe it's just you. It's part of James. You know, you said you mentioned earlier that anger is sometimes a, a valuable thing. Like it can motivate you, like like with me, for instance, to figure out ways around an obstacle rather than obsessing on how wrong the obstacle is. Immediately focusing on, you know, n- new techniques to get around the obstacle. And someone once told me, um, anger is really fear clothed, and maybe, w- w- maybe. When I when you bump into that obstacle, you're afraid. Like let's say it's a, let's say I'm trying to publish a book and people say no. I, maybe I get afraid. I'm not good enough. I'm not good. Enough. Why do they not like me? Like why did they not publish the book? But you know, kind of, you know, again, focusing on getting around these issues is a way of dealing with that fear. You have to take action to to deal with fear. I mm-hmm. think I don't think you could talk yourself out of fear. Yeah, and I think a lot of. A lot of uncomfortable emotions. I'll go back to that one thing of thinking I'm not good enough. At the core of a lot of those things, it boils down to just thinking that somehow you have failed yourself or that other people don't recognize your goodness and and thinking, well, what does that mean for my life? Well, it means I'm not going to reach my greatest potential or it means I'm suffering and, and I'm never going to get out of this. And yeah, you can't, if you can talk yourself rationally and think, okay, maybe you're scared of getting on an airplane. Well, I'm not going to crash. Well, it doesn't mean you're not still going to feel afraid when you step on the airplane. You might push you to say, okay, I'm going to take that first step and buy a ticket. But to know that you can still feel afraid and, and face your fears at the same time. Yeah, I think that acceptance combined with the other uh, uh, the other tools and techniques that you described is is incredibly valuable. But I'll tell you my, can I tell you, to close this, can I tell you my trick on airplanes? Yes. So uh, I used to be really afraid of Flying. Um, I used to be not afraid of flying, and then I nine eleven happened, and of course many people were traumatized by it. But I was in the street right outside of the World Trade Center, and I saw the plane actually crash. You know, a lot of people saw it on TV afterwards, the smoke, the explosions, everything. So I saw the plane physically crash. So forgetting for a second that it was nine eleven, watching a, a, a plane crash is, by itself is a you know, traumatic thing for the brain to right. to see. And I had, you know, for a couple of years, like uh, various PTSD type things. But every time I got on a plane, I was terrified. Even just the slightest turbulence, it's like my mind would go crazy. I thought everyone would just be sitting calmly and I thought for sure we were crashing and I'd my heart would race and everything. But I had one technique that then that started working. It was like magic. Uh, and I don't even know why it works so well, but it works great and i as soon as there's turbulence i actually pray for the plane to crash i want the turbulence to even get worse because i have you ever seen the tv show lost yep so i'm praying that the plane will crash and i'll end up on the island of lost <laughs> so I, I immediately start thinking of the sandy beach and the characters jack kate hurley i'm gonna be their friends all of a sudden <laughs> they're gonna be my new peer group we're gonna hang out and go on adventures in the island and that solves the problem. I literally 
my brain is actually hoping for more turbulence and I enjoy more turbulence after that. Like for some reason that works. I didn't expect that technique to work, but it does. It's like magic. I think that's a great one. It's sort of like changing the outcome, changing the story that you tell yourself and thinking, okay, look, changing your language is going to be great. If, if this happens, how wonderful. Yeah, and I'm wondering actually, like for instance, when I do uh, stand-up comedy, sometimes if it's not going that well, I change my attitude again too, which is I aim for for people to hate me as much as possible. And then that tends to work, kind of lightens things up. Like I'll say, I just want, everybody's quiet right now. I want you guys to hate me as much as possible. And then they all just start laughing. <laughs> so uh, so sometimes that reverse thing works, but it's kind of hard to to know all the situations where it's going to work as opposed to not work. But, you know, I think experimenting and what works for you may not somebody else, if they start yeah. envisioning, you know, ending up on the TV show Lost, it may terrify them more. But to just try some experiments in life. So often we think, well, if this didn't work, then I'm stuck this way forever. But just try it and if, see if it works. If it does, great. Keep doing it. If not, try something else. But just look at life as an opportunity to experiment with a whole bunch of different stuff to find out what works for you. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. So... So thanks once again. Did you mind giving me a therapy session here? I feel like I took advantage of your therapy skills. I didn't pay you $600 or anything. No, it's always a pleasure to be on your podcast and to be able to pick your brain a little bit and figure out what's going on in James Altucher's head. So. No, I feel I picked your brain. <laughs> so Amy Morin, author of one of my favorite books, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, author of 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, author of 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. Uh, which is valuable for men to read as well, which we, we've talked about. The advice was just as good for men. Uh, do you have any idea what the next one's going to be? I don't. Uh, so I guess it's been uh, four months since the last book came out, so it's probably time to start thinking about what's next. Yeah, does your agent call you and say, Amy, we're doing good with the, this 13 things thing. Like, <laughs> you got to keep coming up with stuff. Yeah, my publisher will say, okay, what are we doing next? So it's time to probably start thinking about it. Well, again, if the listeners want to specifically have Amy work on 13 Things Mentally Strong X, don't do, tweet her what that X should be. And Amy, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. Well, Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to remind you, I wrote a book about my experiences called reinvent yourself. And it's all about taking action. Whether you want to supplement your income with a little extra cash or even replace your job or replace your career or or find something to do in retirement or find a way to get to retirement. I wrote this book to show you how. And I've reserved a copy for you today that I'd like to ship to you right now. All you have to do is go to www.reinventbook.net. That's www.reinventbook.net. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.